some people turn out a certain way because of their father, and other people turn out a certain way in spite of their father. And I think in your situation, you've turned out the way you have in spite of your biological father. You are listening to episode five of Complicated Fatherhood, an eight-episode podcast docuseries exploring how my own journey through fatherhood has been affected by the father that I never knew. I'm your host, Ryan Rucker. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, well, thank you. But I need you to stop, head back to episode one, let's start there, because I don't want you to miss a thing. And at the end of the episode, if you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you could. These ratings help others find this podcast, which for an independent podcaster like myself is pretty helpful. But regardless, I am honored that you chose to be here, so thank you. Now let's get into it. Moving forward. What does that even look like? At some point in our life, we come to a crossroads. We have to make a decision. What direction do I go? When we're young, it's easy for us to think about what our next move is. If you've been fired from your job in your 20s, I mean, no big deal. Theoretically, you've got plenty of time to write your story. If you miss your five-year-old's dance recital, I mean, it's certainly a bummer, but the silver lining is they're not going to college tomorrow. At some point, though, we all get to that point in life, whether it's the end of school, the end of a vacation, or the end of life, where we realize, oh wow, I don't have that much time left. When you're faced with this realization, how do you move forward to the end of the chapter, or even your book? You can't stay bitter forever, right? I mean, it's not beneficial for anyone. Unfortunately, bitterness and resentment, it's a natural part of moving forward process. Even after forgiveness takes place, Forgiveness has been proven to improve mental and physical health. Holding onto this hurt is toxic, mainly for the offended party. So if the science is there, showing how important it can be for us to move forward in a healthy way, then why is it so hard for us to do? Latasha Morrison, author of best-selling book, Be the Bridge, talks about reconciliation a lot. In her book, she focuses on racial reconciliation within the Christian church and how we can start to reconcile and lament the hurt caused by others. I started reading this book around the same time that I started writing these intros. Throughout the book, Natasha details what reconciliation looks like as a country, in the church, and also on an individual level. Ultimately, I couldn't stop thinking about the amount of awareness and self-reflection it takes to make amends, something I think most have a real tough time with. When I became a father, the single most over-prescribed piece of advice I was given was cherish it now because it goes by fast. Honestly, I got sick of hearing this. But as I record this with my daughters asleep upstairs, after a day of adventurous walks throughout our neighborhood, that was the most accurate advice I've ever been given. Time flies. Any of my attempts to slow down time has failed. And yet each day gets quicker and quicker 
while long, aimless summer days seem to be a thing of the past. Now every day is a race to create memories, knowing that if one's life can be explained in a couple of stories, then I need to do everything in my power to make these stories count right now. So what does that look like? I mean, the answers look different for every one of us. Understanding our own legacy, I feel is relatively universal throughout history. We want to be remembered for something meaningful. Some want to be remembered in stories. Some want to be remembered by good deeds they've done. But an underrated aspect of legacy to me is, how well did you lament for your mistakes or the hurt you've caused? Because if that hurt carries on in the lives of others, the legacy we hope to build could very much be leaving behind a whole trail of hurt left to be dealt with by other people. Thankfully, if you're still here, you have a chance to change that. We have a chance to move forward. Certainly not forgetting about the past, but acknowledging it in a way that maybe helps others heal, helps other people move forward and break from the insecurities and hurt felt by all of us. Or maybe I'm projecting my struggles onto you. Bear with me. Life is strange. In the end, it's complicated. It's almost overwhelming thinking about how we'll be remembered when we're gone. I know last time we recorded, we had left off at Home Depot. Um, yes. You know, so I figured that'd be a good place to, to pick up. So, you know. Sure. And, uh, so you had you'd been working at Home Depot for, what, 10, 12 years? 10 years, yeah. I, I started there in, I think, 2000, 2008 or 2009. 2008, I started at Home Depot. Okay. April 10th, 2008. And, uh. Um, I was, I just applied for a job there because I was, uh, I was DJing and making most of my money from, from working in nightclubs mm -hmm. and, uh, needed a legit job. So, so I was, I was working at this after school program in Newton, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to get another job on the books. So I applied for a job at Home Depot mm -hmm. and they called me up a couple weeks later and I went in and I worked at Home Depot. Okay. And I, was, I, I had been doing landscaping, so they put me in the garden section. Mm -hmm. and it was really good. Working with some really good people, learned a lot, blah, blah, blah. But before I before I moved back to Albany, I um, this was in December, okay. and uh, they said uh, <laughs> I I called Home Depot in Albany and said I need to transfer down to Albany. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no problem, blah 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 blah. And I transferred to the Albany store, and it was weird because like. When I started at Home Depot, I started at like $12 an hour or something like that. You know, and I gotcha. was making like $15 an hour at the after school program. I was making like 
couple hundred dollars a week DJing. Mm-hmm. So I was doing okay. And so when I moved to Albany, the very first day, December 27th was the day I started. Okay. He told me, he says, we're going to have to start you off at a lower salary than you were making in Boston and in Vermont, just because of the economics of it. It's like, so they cut me back like three, maybe three fifty an hour. Oh, wow. Uh, that, yeah. In the Albany imagine, store. Yeah. I would imagine the cost of living in Albany was probably higher than Wilson, Vermont. It, it actually isn't. It is. Oh. Wilson, Vermont is sort of like, sort of like a Republican stronghold. Okay. So the salaries and stuff are, I think, a little bit higher. Like, okay. yeah, my salary didn't change from Boston to Vermont, but from Vermont to Albany, it did. Okay. So, so I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that. And I was working part time, and then after being there for uh, I don't know a year or so, they made me full time. Mm-hmm. And I also, they knew I had a background of working with kids. So I started running the, the, um, kids workshops. And I was doing like the kids workshops and I was doing birthday parties, go, you know, having groups of kids into the store, go back in the break room and have birthday parties. I would go to different like libraries and, and like Jewish community centers and uh-huh. uh, homeless shelters, you know, battered women's shelters. And I do these w- workshops with kids. And that was sort of my thing, working in the garden. Okay. And wor- working in um, the uh, tool rental and uh, running the front end for a while. So I thought, everything was going okay. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember one thing was at this store, any day of the week, you could be fired for something stupid. Okay. And I just remember coming in almost every day saying, well, who got fired today? Well, who got fired yesterday? Like, it seemed like that was the the thing they did. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember this one guy got fired. A couple guys got fired. And I, I felt at the time they got fired because they were making too much for working there. You know, they had worked there like 15, 16 years. They were now like making 19 or $20 an hour. Mm-hmm. They got fired for, you know, dumb stuff. Like, this one guy got fired for letting another person who works there keep a ladder for an extra day from the tool rental. You know, just dumb things. Yeah. And uh, so, and then, you know, there's also, at this store, there seemed to be a lot more theft from employees and clients than there were at the other two stores that I worked at. Hmm, okay. the Vermont store was sort of like a family store. It was like, you know, like, like a lot of brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and husbands and wives and that 
stuff that worked there. Gotcha. So it was kind of a cool environment. But um, this store was like, um, I don't know, when I first walked into it, it just, it looked kind of junky. Like it had stuff like out in the middle of the aisle, but I guess that's just wait some stores roll. The -hmm. stores that I came from were much bigger stores than the one in Albany. So they had a lot more space, a lot more open aisles and stuff. Okay. But, uh, and so one day I'm working out in garden and, uh, in a booth in garden and this guy comes walking out and he has this little dog trailing behind him. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, he came over to my booth and I was on the phone looking up something for another customer. And this guy walked up to me and the cashier in the other booth said, sir, I'll take you over here. The guy looked at me and says, yeah, he's slow. This guy is slow. I don't know. He's slow. I'm like, well, I was like, okay. And I got off the phone and I saw a dog walking around and I said, sir, you know what? My exact words were, when you have your dog in the store, we prefer that you have him on a leash. Mm. Next words out of his mouth were, F you. You're a piece of S. You, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You're from the ghetto. I'm like, I'm not even working with this. And uh, then so I'm like, you know what? Why don't you just get the hell out of here, sir? Just get the hell out. Just, okay. just get out. That's all I kept saying. <laughs> and um, he kept he said to me, you know, if it wasn't for Trump, you wouldn't even have a job. And you know, Obama Obama was a Muslim, and he shouldn't have been president. And I was like, you're an asshole, sir. You're, you're just you're you're being an asshole. He said you're a piece of shit, and he just kept saying "fuck you, f you" over and over, holding his finger up, saying "f you, f you, you're a piece of." Then he he left. Then he, he he oh no! Before he left, I I I got out of my booth and I went to him and I said, "You know, sir, you're lucky." You're in this store because if we were out on the streets, you wouldn't be talking to me like this. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Then he, he he walked out and he he left. Right. <laughs> then so I'm standing in a booth, and the woman and the the who was in the other booth said, "Should you call the manager?" I'm like, no, why should I call a manager? Matter of fact, I just, right before the guy came in, I saw the manager and assistant manager walking across the parking lot going to lunch. So I knew that they weren't even in the building. Mm-hmm. Then so, but then a little while later, this guy came back. Mm-hmm. And I, I got really nervous. So I'm like, did he just go get a gun or something? Is he coming back to shoot me or... And so, and he came back in and he started yelling out, Rudy, Rudy. I'm like, what the hell's Rudy? What the hell's that? Mm-hmm. In the back and his dog, he had left without his dog. 
And that was, you know, that was like one of the reasons why I told me you should have your dog on your leash. <laughs> and then, so one, one, one of the other employees picked, because it was like one of those little rat dogs, picked up his dog and brought it up to him. And then he just, he just like started saying, fuck you again, you. Like holding a finger, standing by the door, holding his finger up at me. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then so about an hour later, I I get a call from from the uh, my the store manager. So I need to talk to you. And um, and when I got went in his office, I said, all right. So this is about that racist guy that was just in here. And his response to me was, well, that's not a good way to start the conversation, Maurice. Like, whatever. And he said, the guy said that you threatened to throw him down the ground, that you were being racist to him, that this was gone. Like, he's lying. Like, here's exactly what happened. And I went by step by step, what happened? He says, well, we'll figure this out by the end of the day. And then the end of the day came and went. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I think Tuesday. He called me back in his office. He says, uh, yeah, Maurice, I need to talk about this situation. He said, first of all, I can't remember that woman's name who was working. Indra, Indra, that's her name. Indra was working in the other booth. He says, I want you to know that it, your story and Andrew's story match up completely. I'm okay. like, cool. Yeah, that's because neither one of us were lying. And uh, he says, and talk to corporate about this, and I'm going to have to let you go. I'm like, really? Okay. Well, I'm out. He says, we got some paperwork here. I'm like, I don't have anything to do. I have no paperwork to fill out. You just fired me. I'm done. I'm going to my locker. I'm getting my stuff. I'm getting the hell out of this place. And so I uh, I went to my locker. He followed me. And I, I went in the break room. And I said to the women that were in there, I said, you believe I just got fired? They're like, why? My guy, you know, he says, Maurice, you need to keep it to yourself. You don't want to, like, you know, we don't want to, like, spread this around or something like this. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, you don't want to talk to other people about it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to talk to somebody about it. Oh, people are definitely going to hear about this. And little did I know that the extent that it was going to go when I said what I said. Mm -hmm. But I went out to my car, and I just bought a. I just bought my first car since I've been back in Albany, and um, I, I plan. My plan was and in the evening drive for Lyft. That mm -hmm. was the plan when I bought the car. So I went out in the car, and I just wrote on Facebook exactly what happened step by step every you know from beginning to end mm -hmm. to how i got fired and so on and so forth mm -hmm. then the next day i got a call from this guy chris chris churchill at the um 
to Albany Times Union. Okay. He says, um, I heard about your, um, your situation. Would you like to tell me more about it? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, uh, yeah. And I told him the whole story. Then the next day, that was in the newspaper. The day after that, I got a call from Channel 13 News. And I got a call from Spectrum News. And I got a call from Channel 10 News. They all wanted to come down and interview me. So they did. Mm -hmm. And they interviewed me. And the thing went viral. It was just, it was all over the internet. I was getting... Uh, emails from people in Denmark and London and D.L. Hughley posted the article on his page and I got, I got a call from um, what the hell's his name uh, not John Lewis uh, Marilyn Senator uh, Ferg, Ferg. he just died oh is Elijah Cummings Elijah Cummings, yeah. Okay. So I got I got a call from Elijah Cummings' office to see if I was doing okay, if there was anything I needed. And I'm like, no, no, I'm cool. And then people were telling me they were seeing it like they saw it on BET. Someone said they saw a blurb about it on CNN. And and it was just everywhere. It was, it was kind of crazy, you know? And mm -hmm. It got to the point where I'd be walking down the street and people are like looking at me and I'm like, or waving to me and I'm like, who the hi? I don't, who the hell are you? <laughs> and so then I get a job for, got a job offer from Curtis Lumber. I got a job offer from uh, the Hudson Mohawk Humane Society. Mm -hmm. I was getting these, these, these people were just calling me, basically offering me jobs. And then one day I got a call from um, Dan McCoy, the city commissioner for Albany or the county commissioner for Albany. Okay. And he said, I'm out of town right now, but I was, I was just thinking about you and I saw your article and I want you to Tuesday go into my office and ask for so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And then so I went in, talked to these three people and told them, you know, I have a background of working with young people and so on and so forth. And they said, we might have a job for you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so they sent me over, they sent um, Ron Barrett, who worked in the probation department, but he's not a probation officer. He's a, basically a gang intervention guy. Okay. He has like a long history of working with young people in Albany and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we met. He seemed cool to me, little white guy, bald head. They brought me over to the probation department and introduced me to the guy who was going to be my boss. And it felt a little bit weird. Okay. Like, they're like that? yeah, yeah. It, it seemed like they were like bending over backwards to be nice, but it didn't really feel nice. Okay. It was like somebody told them they had to be nice to me kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I later found out that, wow, let me get to it. 
And so he says, yeah, we could put you in this room here and have you do the employment room because they, they had an employment room. But what the way it was being run was different probation officers would spend a day in, in, the, in the room and people would come by. They talk to them about getting jobs and so on and so forth. Okay. And so they said, yeah, we're going to put you in here and uh, see what you can come up with. And that's basically what I did. I, I put a system in place, um, an interview process. I started calling up employers. And then after I was there for a while, for a couple of weeks, the POs were coming in my office saying, you're doing a great job, man. My client told me you were like really wonderful and you got him a job interview and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I wasn't really doing anything that people couldn't do for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just like looking online for, for jobs and calling employers and saying, are you hiring people? Yeah. Yeah. And then people would come in and I print out the job posting and say, go to the job and, you know, fill us out, you know, and I'd start taking people's resumes and I started taking people to job fairs and I just got busy. Mm-hmm. And then, after I was there for a while, my boss told me, I, I said, you guys really didn't want me here, did you? He said, no, not really. We thought you were going to be just another political hire, some guy that's going to come in, not knowing anything, and sit in an office and take a paycheck every week. He says, but I love you, man. I love you. <laughs> You're doing a great job. Okay. So, Yeah. Yeah, so that's the way that went, and uh, I don't I really can't talk about the settlement that I got with Home Depot, but I did get a lawyer through um, some people at the Albany NAACP that I knew through my sister, got me in touch with a lawyer. And so we were after Home Depot, mm-hmm. and that was done. Okay. And then with that money, I put a down payment on this house, and here I am. Okay. Well, you know, it's funny is because I remember that, that first Facebook post that you were talking about. Um, you know, I remember logging on and seeing it's just like this long message you know, uh, from you and there was like a lot of comments and likes and just like, no, I mean, you have a lot of people that like, like and comment your stuff, but this one just seemed like extraordinary. So I remember right. reading and I was like, geez, like this whole situation seems crazy. And like my professional background is in HR. Like I'm in recruiting now, but employee relations right. is where I got, got my start. So I'm, I'm reading it from a couple different vantage points. I'm reading it from, you know, my perspective and also from my professional perspective, and I'm like, oh, geez, Home Depot seems to have messed this up. And Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't tell you. So, like, three days after they fired me, they um, emailed me and said, we've, take, we've taken a second look at the situation. Now, this mm-hmm. is while it's starting to blow up. Facebook. So mm-hmm. we've taken a second look and we would like to offer you your job back, your old job at your old <laughs> salary. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's what I'm talking about. It's like from from my perspective, I saw that, and the reason I was like, "Oh, Home Depot messed up," is because I was like, "Look, in because this was what two years ago, so 2018." Yeah. Yeah. So, like in this political climate, like you fire a black man for receiving racist remarks from. In Albany, like, and if it comes out that his story was that your story was corroborated, and they fired you anyway, like that is awful. So I'm just reading this and just kind of waiting. I'm like, oh man, this is bad. So then, you know, it's crazy because I'm seeing like the the Rutgers side of the family, like in Albany, like post about it and this and that. So you know, I'm not seeing it go viral initially, but then I think it was a couple days later one of my friends out here in California and like my California friends and I mean my New York friends for that matter, don't, don't know about you. They, they don't know who you are. So I saw one of my right. California friends or an aunt or somebody um, had shared the story. It was like, unbelievable. Home Depot should be ashamed. And I see it. I'm like, Oh my God, that's Maurice. <laughs> Just, that was that was the second I was like, Oh, this thing is going to blow up. And then um, I think I saw that you had, posted something about DL, DL Hughley and then I hopped on Reddit and I saw that there was like a, a Reddit thread. There's a couple Reddit threads about it. So I'm just seeing it like all over the place. So outside of like your personal bubble, I'm seeing it in like my California bubble. And like there was a family member in Maryland that's not even connected to any of us who had posted about it and shared about it. And I'm like, this is crazy. Um, and I remember you know, it was interesting from my perspective because, of course, I was like, oh, like, Maurice got the raw end of this deal. But it was interesting because I, all the sympathy that was that was being geared towards you or that was being thrown your way, it was funny for me to see because, obviously, we have we have a good relationship now and, you know, like, no animosity from my end, like, at all. But it was strange for me to see all these people say, like, oh, Maurice, what a wonderful man. How could anybody do him this way? And... <laughs> You know, there was there was a small part of me, if I'm being honest, that was like, I don't know if they know his whole backstory. Like, you know, it was it was weird for me to to see, like, you know, I don't want to say the whole world, but to your point, it did go viral, and to yeah. see so many people show so much sympathy towards you, and like, we need to get this man some help. We need to do all these things, and I'm thinking of like our entire backstory, like 30 years. And I was like. Ah, like, it's, it's, like, it's like it's one of the reasons why I would never run for any office because there are skeletons in my closet that are screaming to get out. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, it was just it was just a small a small part. But then, of course, yeah. I'm like, no, for sure, like Home Depot completely messes up. And you know, it was funny when I either saw on your Facebook page, or I think I had actually read somewhere that Home Depot tried to offer the job back. And I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, let's get this man a $12 an hour job or, and in, at this point, I, I didn't know that you were going to like, you know, reach out to any lawyers or anything. I figured that would be the case. Probably should have been the case. Right. Um, but I was like, hmm, let me, let me weigh the options. Let me go back to my $12 an hour job where I can get fired for even racist attacks on me, or I can get a lawyer kind of go after them and you know so <laughs> yeah it was crazy but it was wild for me to see my like all these worlds coming together with people who had no idea i had any connection i'm sure they didn't even read the name nobody had ever asked me like you know hey as you know this person you know i think i mentioned it as right. some 
talking about the story and they'd heard about it. And I was like, yeah, that's actually my biological dad. And they were like, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy, crazy story. Uh, Obviously you came out of that. You've, you've got the job now you've got the house and things seem to be like, okay for you. You've got your garden. Is that correct? You know, how, how was the house? Yeah. 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 The house is okay. I, uh, I just, you know, it's more expensive than anticipated. So like, like I couldn't deal with like right now, any catastrophic issues. Like if my boiler went or something stupid like that, I might be in a little bit of trouble, Mm -hmm. but I'm getting through it day by day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I, um, oh yeah. One of the things was I, I went out shortly after, um, and with some people who I knew from home Depot, some friends mm-hmm. and one of them who still works there, she says, I walked back into the office the other night and they were crying. Like the 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 HR woman and one of the staff people, they were crying. It's like <laughs> we just keep getting phone calls saying "fuck you, you guys suck," and like I'm never shopping at Home Depot again, and blah blah. <laughs> and some um, some contractors put had a little demonstration out in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and people were sending the pictures videos of them cutting up their Home Depot card. Like, one of the... uh, Oh, and right after that happened, they transferred the store manager to another store. Ah, okay. Like, you know, they were saying he wanted to transfer, but, you know, I don't, you know, I don't like the um the home depot that we i worked at a lot of people called the ghetto home depot because it was close to downtown albany and they had like more black people that shopped there than other stores and i always thought that he wasn't really that comfortable around black people anyway so they moved him out to latham and um yeah. Uh, so, you know, seem, things seem to be going you know, pretty well for you now. And, you know, I remember at the very beginning of this, you talked about how your life was a series of short sitcoms. I think that's the way yeah. that <laughs> you described everything. And, you know, so, yeah. you know, looking from childhood to where you are now, like in your house and everything in between, what are what are some thoughts on... Uh, on the past, you know, 62 years, like, are, are you happy with where you are right now? Um, you know what, considering how I've lived my life, yeah, should, should I be beyond where I am? Without a doubt, because I I know, it's not that I even think, I know that I'm smarter than this. I just, you know, it's not to play the blame game anywhere, but I never felt like I got 
trained to be a contributing member of society. I've just, I've sort of been a dreamer all my life and I've just moved from one situation to the next. And my, my knowledge has been gained by, I don't know, being around certain people and listening to certain people, not so much sitting in a classroom and learning how to do things and finish things from like a book. Mm -hmm. Like it's sort of like I've skipped over so many of the basic, I don't know, tenets of being a man, a black man in America. I just, I didn't learn, like I said, I, I, I didn't learn early on how to do, like, you know, I think like, I think your mother taught me how to, how to drive a, a four speed and maybe how to write out a check, hmm. things like that. I, I didn't learn when I was in high school because I didn't really go. Like, yeah. I just, I came, I came across, you know, like I was in high school, I was going to CBA, Christian Brothers Academy, mm -hmm. and I came across uh, a situation with a boy there. I didn't like it, so I just didn't go back. And I would just stay home and watch TV. And, and, Did anybody you know, force you to go back? Because my it, it, at this time, <clears throat> like we grew up mostly on welfare, but by this time, my mother had gone to training, learned how to type, and she was working, so she was the only one there. Mm. So, like, she would leave the house early in the morning, and then come home after I was supposed to be out of school. Mm -hmm. then I would just sneak out of the house and go hang out in some place with some people sleeping at different people's houses and on different couches. And this is when I was like 14, 15 years old. Okay. And uh, the only thing I, I knew that I, I knew even at that age that I wanted to do is I wanted to sing in a band. I always knew that I was a good singer, even when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, I can sing. I can, I can, you know, I can hear things better than other people, so I can translate it. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I never, you know, I go through periods where I would start to develop in a certain area, like basketball then I would stop. Then I develop, you know, uh, you know, write, write, writing, which I never really did anything with until I got older. Mm -hmm. So I just, I, if if I could break it down to like one sentence, I I was never able to complete pretty much anything.
I guess. So to, to, to own a house now, even though like I'm behind on some of my bills, is kind of an amazing place for me to be right now. I didn't really have expectations of this happening. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now you had said that you've always been a dreamer, which is, you know, really interesting because I would kind of consider myself to be similar in that regards. Um, yeah. You know, but like, you know, through either childhood or early twenties or when you would dream about the future, I, I did I don't know if you would dream about being 62, but what did you dream your future was going to look like when you were younger? Uh, you know what? It's kind of funny because it, it, it always seemed like what I dreamed about was like the immediate future, and but not necessarily, you know, like, Tell you the truth, I I had no expectations to live to be in my sixties. Mm. I I didn't think that I would actually live this long, um, for whatever for whatever reason, you know. I I I, I um I just I just it seems like I I, I went through phases that always ended the same you know it's like i get something going then it would fall apart and instead of trying to rebuild it i would try to do something else and when that fell apart i would try to do something else because i it seemed like i was always blaming it on the situation as opposed to blaming it on myself you know Mm. So uh, it's, I mean, I mean, it's it's, and I and, and the, really the only reason that I have any clarity about this right now is based on these conversations we've been having, because I've had an opportunity to really think about how I've lived my life and what I've done, what I didn't do. I mean, you know, I. And I I think that I'm smart enough that if I picked one thing and just did it all my life, I would be CEO of some big company now. I just I just know that because I I mean I meet a lot of people who I don't think are as intelligent have the innate intelligence that I'd have. Mm -hmm. who are successful because whatever it is they did, they just stuck with it and they just kept doing it over and over and over again till it just got good and got good to them. Okay. So. Yeah. Interesting because I was going to ask, um, which you kind of already answered, but I was going to ask, when did you come to this realization? Cause the one thing I, I, do have to say I didn't really know what to expect going into these conversations you know um, part of me was certainly nervous to, to ask about it you know right. because, um, a we're recording it so I was like I didn't want you to be like yeah I don't know if I really want all this out there <laughs> which was like totally fine right. from my perspective I still wanted to know some of the backstory because I think like I had mentioned before you know it would be weird as as a kid and 
more so now going to the doctor and people would ask about family history, especially now in my thirties. And there's a lot of things like, I don't really know. Um, And then just, you know, curiosity gets me from time to time. And right now, as I kind of walk through my own fatherhood and, you know, speak to other dads who talk about their own upbringing, whether they had dads who were present or who, who weren't, you know, there's a lot of that family origin that rolls into the sons and daughters for that matter, and kind of affects their own parenthood journey, their own fatherhood journey. So I just wanted to know some of that to understand kind of where this is coming from. So what I will say is that was going into this conversation, I don't think I was expecting you to be as, uh, to have as much self-clarity as you do have, which for me has been kind of nice to hear, you know? Um, so all that being said, long story short, you know, when do you think you came to that realization? Yeah. Like I said, I've, I've always, well, not always, but since I've been a senior, uh, I've, um, I've, I've had a sense of like, there, there was a, a letter that I started to you guys, to you, Tony and Adrian, like about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I got it on the computer. I could at some point print it out. But as I, as I read it, I'm like, wow you're kind of a piece of shit. You like, you like dunce, you know, and I, and I, and, and it's, it's sort of like where I came up with the phrase that I've lived a selfish life. I came up with that as I was writing this, I was thinking, I was like, wow, man, you like, you didn't learn how to do, you know, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting working with kids as I've done all my life mm-hmm. or all my adult life. I, 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 I have, uh, uh, I guess what do you call it? A pedagogy of, uh, of how I approach working with kids and the things that I feel about working with kids. And, and one of the things that I've always said, it's like, you get to do three things in life. You get to learn, work, and then relax. And it's up to you to decide when you're going to do which one of them. Like, if you're going to relax early on, you're going to have to learn later in order to work and make a living. And, it, you know, and if you just work, work, that's all you're going to be known as. You're not, you know, you're not going to develop beyond where you are. So it's sort of like those three things, like, I realized that you have to do in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do them in the order that should make you a successful person. And so, um, I don't know, it's, that's yeah. kind of where I am. Okay, interesting. Now, if if you could go back, you know, like you talked about the high school period, you talked about like early on, um, 
I know it's kind of a cliche question, but you know, what are some things that, that you would change, you know, kind of going back, you know, in your life? Oh, I would have, one, I would have learned to be a better musician. I would um, that's where I mean, cause that seemed to be my priority and throughout life. And if I had done that, like become like a better piano player or a better guitar player, um, that's one thing that I would do differently. The other thing is I would, you know, cliche of staying in school I would I would stay in school I would stay in place and I would not I'd not go out searching all over the place for you know like like Betty what's her name Gail Dorothy Gail says you know you not you don't need to go beyond your own backyard to fulfill your heart's desire mm-hmm. the Wizard of Oz and uh so i would uh, i would probably i would have stayed in place <clears throat> i would have um taken advantage of opportunities that i had when i was in junior high and i just i just felt weird cuz i I just, I, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I was always like leaving someplace because I felt like this situation isn't right for me. Mm-hmm. And really what it was, it was I wasn't right for the situation. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, um, yeah, I, I would have, I would have, Definitely, because the things that were going on in school, it wasn't like I couldn't do them. It's just I didn't want to do them. Okay. I, you know, I, I, I was, I was arrogant. I thought that I knew more than than I actually did, but which I didn't find out until I was later, until I was older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I. I don't know. Like I said, I would have I would have taken advantage of opportunities that I had that I just blew off. And that's I mean, I think if if I think if I'd done all of that stuff when I mean, like I had this kidney surgery when I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. So I I spent most of my sixth grade in in the hospital. And then when I got out of out of um, the hospital, we moved to Troy. So we moved from Rensselaer. So all the kids that I'd grown up with, like from kindergarten to sixth grade, were now gone, and I was now living in the projects in Troy. Mm. And it was a real. It was. Culturally, it was different because Rensselaer was more of a, a mixed race community. Mm-hmm. Although the uh, although the street block that I lived on was mostly black families, Rensselaer was like a mix of black and white, and you know, it was at a time 
when black people were still called Negro or even colored. And then when I moved to Troy in seventh grade, all of a sudden we were black. We had to be black. And all of my friends were black. And I lived in the projects, you know, like the projects that you see black people living in. And it was kind of, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever said this to anybody, but it was kind of a cultural shock for me to be spending as much time exclusively with black people, with a sprinkling of, you know, white people here and there. But that's, so I got away from that environment by mm-hmm. hanging out at the boys club and then after the boys club, I started hanging out with like white kids who were in bands and who had musical instruments. And those were the ones that I wanted to be around. And that I started getting high and smoking weed and dropping acid. And then so, you know, it was kind of a blow. Okay. It's kind of a, there's just like a lot of, you know, I, I went through a little crime spree when I was 16, me and this kid, Danny, and me and this kid, Mike, we break in the houses and just, just crook ass criminals for a little while. Mm-hmm. Then, then Plattsburgh and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Now, have you, we've talked about a lot, but have you ever talked to anybody you know, maybe outside of you know Boston about fatherhood specifically, especially in recent years. Uh, you know what? No, not really. Other than this guy that I work with, Dan. Dan. Okay. We have conversations about it, but he has three boys, and but no, not really. Not not like I have with you. You know. I've had conversations with Adrian, mm-hmm. but they were just like, you know, just casual. She's asked, asked me questions and I answered her. Mm-hmm. And she asked me, how, how, how could you work with kids when you had your own kids? And I'm like, it was, it was a job. And it, it's sort of like, I felt almost like a, a, a surrogate to some of these kids. There was mm-hmm. like, you know, a lot of them live with their mother or whatever. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. So now with the with the three of us, is there anything that I don't, uh, I don't know if I want to ask, is there anything you would have changed? But like, you know, going forward, you know, what are some of the things that um that you would like to do because you know obviously we can't go back in time you know but what are some of the things that you know you could change going forward about fatherhood that i could change at this point could or would want to or would you want fatherhood to be any difference yeah like like are you talking about like in hindsight like what would be different or do or yeah, we, we could do hindsight. Yeah, so, you know, in hindsight, you know, what are some of the things that maybe you would have changed about your relationship with the three of us? Um, well, here's, here's one thing. If 
the relationship with Adrian and Tony would have like been better than you would probably have never existed. That's fair. So if I mean, and which is, and and it's and it's kind of weird because out of all three of you, I mean, I feel I have a connection, but even before we started these conversations, I felt and I had more of a connection with you, and I don't know if that's because you're the last or it's because of the way Gene raised you. You, um, you know, we have, I think we have, I think at this point we have a good adult relationship, you know, um, but in, in, in hindsight, I mean, really, all I all I can do is think about the the future, and hopefully, I can continue and establish relationships with my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty important to me. That I that like. Like, I've never had a conversation with Allie about anything. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's you know, I don't know if that's by design or it's just never come up. Or where, whereas I have a really good relationship with Tony's wife, Malele. Okay. Okay. Like, probably more so than Tony. She She reaches out. And you know, sends notes and makes calls and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So, I, I just ultimately want to be here from this point on to support your families in any way that I possibly can, and that you know. In 15, 20 years when I die, that, you know, everyone comes to my funeral. It's ultimately all, all, all I want out of life at this point. I just want to be able to give you guys whatever support I can give you, mm -hmm. establish relationship with my grandchildren, and make sure that. Everyone comes to my funeral when I die. Next time on Complicated Father. I noticed, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm different. Growing up in Glens Falls, he's going to have a rough time. And then just like on the other side of the family tree, it was just like all this mystery and a little bit of shame. For me, it was really strange because like here I was getting to know her dad like at, at his own funeral. Complicated Fatherhood was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ryan Rucker. All music was composed and recorded by me as well. Join us for the conversation on Instagram, at Complicated Fatherhood, 
And if you like what you hear, I'd love for you to share this podcast on any of your favorite social media platforms using the hashtag complicatedfatherhood. We'll see you next time.